Uh, would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And uh, as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study of God's Word, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and the Hangar in Montana, and Purpose Church Rancho Cucamonga, and our new friends at First Baptist Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you are joining us as well. As we continue our series entitled Fearless, in which we're dealing with different fears that people go through in their lives and what the Bible says addresses as to how we can deal with those fears. And today's fear is thanatophobia. You want to say that out loud with me? Together, one, two, three, thanatophobia. One more time out loud together, thanatophobia, the fear of dying. It's the second biggest fear that people have. Does anybody want to guess what the number one fear is? Heights, that's a good one, that's a good one. It's public speaking. It's what I'm doing right now. Thank you, Fatty. Absolutely. Uh, Public speaking, 74% of the American population. Second greatest fear is death at 68%. So that means that if you were doing the eulogy at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than standing next to the casket and and speaking uh, at that service. I love what Yogi Berra said. He was the uh, famous uh, New York Yankee. His wife asked him, where do you want me to bury you? He said, I don't know, surprise me. And so uh, that was us. That was indeed a surprise. Now, not everybody's enthusiastic about living uh, forever. Here's an actual answer from a contestant in a Miss America contest, 1994. The question was this, if you could live forever, would you and why? She answered, I would not live forever because we should not live forever. Because if we were supposed to live forever, then we would live forever. But we cannot live forever, which is why I would not live forever. So I'm glad we, I'm glad we cleared that up. I got it clear, clear as can be. I remember the story of a small rural church, and the pastor goes, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Everybody raised their hand except for one little boy in the back. And the pastor said, little boy, don't you want to go to heaven? He goes, sure I do, but I thought you were getting up a group to go right now. And I just... Uh, Kind of want to put it off for a little bit. Want to go to heaven, but not too soon. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says, He, God, has also set eternity in the human heart. You know, we sense there's got to be more than this life, don't we? It's just stamped on our hearts. Around the world, in almost every culture, you'll have a sense of an afterlife. Because there's something in our hearts, you know, the stuff of this life just doesn't satisfy And so it's because we were made for more than this life. Uh, We just sense in our hearts something's there that tells us there's got to be more. There's got to be something beyond. And the reason is here, Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. He has also set eternity in the human heart. He has stamped your heart and my heart with eternity. And that's why we sense it's there. That's why everybody believes it's there. Uh, They're true to their heart if they sense what's deep inside. Every culture has a sense of the afterlife. Australian Aborigines and the Finnish people pictured heaven as a distant island. Uh, Those from Mexico, Peru, and Polynesians believe that after you died, you went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believe that their spirits would hunt the spirits of the buffalo uh, in the afterlife. 
In the pyramids of Egypt, uh, embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world, and, and they would also have uh, food put in there for that person in the future world as well. And Kimberly, whenever she eats something she really likes, like she'll say, man, you've got to bury me in my casket in chocolate just in case the Egyptians are right. That's, what, that's her standard line. Whenever she really loves something, she'll say, bury me in that in case the Egyptians are right. The Romans uh, believed that the righteous would picnic in fields while their horses grazed nearby. And so the Bible says the reason we all have this sense is because we, we sense in our hearts that there's got to be more than what we have. And yet even though uh, we have this uh, somewhat positive hope for the afterlife, why do people fear death in spite of that? Well, here are some questions that we have that I think lead to that fear of death. What's it going to be like? What's it going to feel like? Um, will I die into nothingness? You know, are we random cells experiencing random chance? Maybe the biggest fear is this we're going to die, and that's, that's all she wrote. It's just nothingness. Uh, will I be in heaven or hell? Will I know people? Will I be known by people? What if I believed was wrong? Will I be punished for the bad things I did on earth? What's going to happen to my family? Boy, that's the one that I always feel like. You know, I think my biggest fear of death is, are the kids going to be taken care of uh, after I'm gone? Uh, will I see my family again? Will I be bored? I think this is true the younger you are. Um, the older you get, the more a little boredom might not hurt, you know? But when you're young, you're like, man, am I just going to sit on clouds doing nothing for eternity? Am I just going to be bored? Uh, so many questions. So death is hard, but we don't have to be afraid of it. But it is still hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to leave your loved ones behind. Hard to go through physical pain. We're concerned about what we're going to happen to the people we care about after we're gone. Uh, there may have been more that we wanted to do in our life. Or as followers of Jesus, maybe we think, man, there's more I wish I'd done for the Lord before I died. So death is hard, but we, the Bible says we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. You'll see it there in your study outline. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, a great example in the Bible is Stephen. He was a godly young man. He preached the longest sermon recorded in Scripture, and uh, people wanted to kill him for it. Not because his sermon went long, but they were convicted uh, by what he said. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul in the Hebrew, Paul in the, in the Greek. And, and I like to think, that Paul, who eventually became a follower of Christ, one of the most dynamic followers of Christ ever lived, that when he saw the fearless way that this young man Stephen died, I can't help but believe it planted a seed in his heart, which eventually came to fruition when he became a follower of Christ. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like his Savior, Jesus. He said, Lord, receive my spirit. And Lord, I forgive those. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He, he called out from the cross in agony. And the same way, being stoned to death is a painful way to die. And yet he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Following the example of Jesus to pray for his enemies. When he had said this, he fell asleep, which is another way of saying he died. And he became the first follower of Jesus to die for his faith. There would be millions that would follow over the last 2,000 years. Do you know that the conservative estimates are that every year, 100,000 people in the world die simply for being followers of Jesus Christ. And that's a, a conservative estimation. It's the greatest human rights violation in the world today. It's not talked about in the media very much or very often, but it's the greatest human rights violation today are atrocities against followers of Jesus. Do you know that one follower of Jesus dies every five minutes in the time it takes me to preach this message somewhere around the world, usually in places like Africa or Asia or, or South America, it's some place in the world, every five minutes, seven or eight people just during the time of this message are going to die simply for being followers of Jesus like, like Stephen did and say, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. Don't hold this sin against them. They breathe their last in this life. They breathe their next in the presence of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Seven reasons Christians don't need to fear death. Number one, death takes us instantly into the presence of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I love the way the King James puts it. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 1800s, kind of the Billy Graham of the 1800s, his last words before he died were, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. Now, what about soul sleep? Um, some uh, Christians believe in this thing called soul sleep, where your soul sleeps until Jesus returns, until the second coming. And this is not something for us to argue about very much. It really doesn't make that much difference. It's one of those Christian liberty uh, ideas. Um, and, and yet, I don't believe it to be true, but certainly it, it makes no difference if it, is, if it is true. I mean, if you had a good night's sleep last night, say you went to bed at 11 and woke up at 7, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing, okay? Just, you know, eight hours later you pop up. Well, it doesn't feel any difference when you wake up at seven in the morning as if you woke up a minute later at 11.01, okay? Uh, you, you, it just seems like the same. It's just like, boom, you know, you wake up. And so whether we wake up at the second coming or whether we wake up instantly, but I do not believe that's true because of the evidence of Scripture. Uh, Luke 23, verse 33, Jesus turns to the man crucified next to him on the cross and says, truly, I tell you, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, those that believe in soul sleep uh, believe that the comma after, should go after today rather than before today. Truly, I tell you, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. But the original Greek grammar and construction uh, votes for, the evidence is for, the comma going before the word today. And so Jesus says, truly, I tell you, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Philippians 1.21 Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. He has this struggle. He says, if I stay in this life, I can serve other people. I can serve God. But if I die, I get to be with Jesus. And it's a real struggle. Well, it's only a struggle if he's instantly in the presence of Jesus. Might as well just stay here and work for Jesus rather than sleep for 2,000 years until he comes back. We even see this in the Old Testament. You can see examples of this. Genesis 5, 24. 
Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Boy, I like to go like that. How many of you would like to go like that, okay? 2 Kings 2 verse 11 As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Boy, I'd love even more to go like that. How many of you would like to go like that? But the bottom line is you breathe out in this life, you breathe in, in heaven, in the presence of Jesus for eternity. Number two, death is like sailing to an exotic island. Um, three times the Bible uses the word paradise. Here are the three times. The first is in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Uh, Paul says he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Uh, this word translated here, paradise, in, in Greek, in Greek literature, meant a beautiful garden. It was like the Garden of Eden restored to us. And so in the Greek, this word paradise means a beautiful garden. Revelation 2, verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Next page of your study outline. Uh, Back to that verse we just looked at from the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke 23. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Think of this criminal crucified next to Jesus. He's in excruciating pain, in agony on the cross. And in one moment, he's in agony on the cross. He breathes out. He breathes his next breath in, in paradise. What an awesome, awesome hope. Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. This Greek word depart in the original Greek means uh, if you have a ship tied to the dock to a pier, and when the ship wants to leave, you unwrap the rope around the pier so that the ship is free to begin its journey. And that's what this Greek word means here. I desire to depart, to unwrap my rope from around the pier so that now my ship is free uh, to go to the place that God has called on me to go. Number three, death is like moving from a tent into a mansion. Second Corinthians 5, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Just yesterday at a graveside service, I read John 14 with the family there. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I not have told you, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Number four, death means experiencing Many, many no mores. A lot of no mores in the Bible. First one is no more boredom. People think heaven's going to be boring. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mark Twain uh, would, would mock worship in heaven. And he said this. Uh, this was his idea of praise and worship in, in, in heaven. It goes on all day long and every day. 
during a stretch of 12 hours. The singing is of hymns alone. Nay, it is of one hymn alone. (laughs) One song for eternity. The words are always the same. In number, they are only about a dozen. So a praise song with only 12 words that you sing forever. There is no rhyme. There is no poetry. You just sing it over and over again. Well, absolutely not true. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What do you most enjoy doing? That's what you're going to do in heaven. Do you like to golf? Where do you see the golf courses in heaven? Do you like football? The Packers always win the Super Bowl in heaven. Um, do you like to garden? We already said it's paradise. It's like a, a, a big garden. Do you like to create? Do you like to do art? Even if you're not artistic here, you will be artistic there. How fun will, will that be? Let me tell you my view of heaven. I got it from my dad a little bit. He was a geology major and a forester and loved to be in the outdoors and everything. And I think I kind of picked it up from him about exploring the stars for all of eternity. He used to talk about that. And, and, and so my idea, I mean, if God made the universe so vast, it's going to take all, eternity just to explore all of it especially if it's still expanding. No more boredom, no more sorrow. Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No more sin, Ephesians 5, and to present her, the church, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. No more trials and struggles, Revelation 14, for they will rest from all their toils and trials. No more death, 1 Corinthians 15, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. There's a bunch more beyond that of no mores. And then number five, death means seeing old friends and making new ones. Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast, a big banquet feast, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. How awesome will that be? Breakfast with Abraham Lincoln, a lunch with Martin Luther King Jr., a dinner with Mother Teresa, a breakfast the next day with Paul, lunch with Moses, Um, dinner with Esther, next morning breakfast with Adam and Eve. It just goes on and on. And seeing old friends. One of the phrases for dying that the Bible talks about is it says he was gathered to his people. It means joining our loved ones in heaven. You close your eyes, you breathe your last year, you breathe in, you're in heaven, and there's your, your godly mom and dad, your godly grandmother, grandfather, Uh, gathered to your people, or maybe you've lost a child and you open up your eyes in heaven to seeing that child that maybe you've never seen uh, because they were gone before birth or, or maybe you haven't seen them for years. Boy, you know, I'm just constantly amazed as a pastor for 35 years now, the most painful experience is losing a child. And Kimberly and I talk about this a lot, that when we talk to somebody, they may have lost a child decades ago, 40 or 50 years ago, and tears will spring to their eyes as if it happened just yesterday or the past week. 
and, and just think of opening your eyes in heaven and seeing that that child did a funeral yesterday for um, a family that where the son had died, and, but the mother had died ahead of him. And so just the thought that the two of them reunified in heaven, uh, Jesus uh, giving this son to the, the mother and presenting to the mother her son that had just come to heaven. David uh, writes about going to see his son who died. In Second Samuel chapter 12, he says, I will go to him one day. First Thessalonians 4, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It'll be just minutes and our loved ones will be joining us in heaven. The Bible says that to God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. That means if I die today and Kimberly dies 25 years from now, that's just 30 minutes in heaven. Just time enough for me to have uh, lunch with Babe Ruth or somebody, you know? And... Um, well, maybe I better pick somebody I know is going to be there. He, he, <laughs> he was a New York Yankee after all. Stan Musial. There we go. Stan Musial. The greatest St. Louis Cardinal that ever lived. Okay. That just came out. I hope Bill Ramirez is not here. Bill, you're not up there, are you? Okay, okay. I don't want Bill to be insulted about his Yankees. But you know what? Just 30 minutes. And, 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 there, and there she comes. Number six, death results in a vastly improved body. Now we're talking. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Okay, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have the hair of Fabio. <laughs> and the body of, of Fabio as, as well. As a matter of fact, just so you'll recognize me in heaven, here's, here's, what, uh, here's what I will look at. There you go, yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay, Pete, we better get that off of there. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to disturb your nightmares, okay? Who's going to sleep now after that haunting vision? Kimberly has not seen that yet. She's going to be right there on the front row at 11-11. Oh, is she going to be excited? I am sure. Fabio's body, Captain Kirk's job. That's what I want for heaven. Romans 8, we too wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he has promised us, bodies that will never be sick again and will never die. Philippians 3, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. I want to get a hint as to what this is going to be like. Think of Jesus after the resurrection. He could eat. He could drink. Uh, he could walk. He, he could talk. Uh, now, the one thing he could do is transport himself at the speed of thought. Scientists tell us that the speed of thought is a million times faster than the speed of light. So maybe we won't need the Starship Enterprise. Maybe we'll just think it and explore a black hole. Think it and explore uh, a distant uh, galaxy. Uh, but you just think of Jesus' resurrection body. We'll get an imperishable body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, 
there is also a spiritual body. So no more drug commercials, okay, for medications. No, you'll never hear again, ask your doctor about Zycor, or I don't know, I just made that up, Zentax, or Zycor, or whatever. Don't, don't have to ask your doctor about that anymore, no need. Now here's a question a lot of people have. Tamika will answer this definitively when she teaches on this later on. I'm sure, Tamika, you have an exact age on that, okay? Um, how old will we be in heaven? And we have no idea, not a clue. But Hank Hanegraaff has a theory. At some point in our 20s or 30s, our DNA is programmed so that the breakdown of our bodies exceeds the buildup of our bodies. So how about 30 years old? How many vote for 30? Okay. How about 16? How many vote for 16? Okay, if you're 30, then Pastor Brian will be the pastor to everybody. He's our young adult pastor. If you're 16, Pastor Eric will be the pastor to everybody. Um, Pastor Randy will be out of a job. I just want you to know. No senior adult pastors in heaven. Actually, you know, the, you know the history of Pastor Randy. He was our high school pastor years ago. Went to another church for a number of years. I hunted him, tried to get him back to our church. He left before I came, and it was my mission to get Pastor Randy back here. Finally got him back as our senior adult pastor. So we say he's still our high school pastor, just for those that went to high school in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So, so Pastor Randy is still our high school pastor. Okay. Number seven. God gave visible proof that he has power over death. See, this is not just wishful thinking. He gave evidence to back up the promise. Here's the promise. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he didn't just give evidence by his own resurrection, which is the most validated event in all of human history. Historians are completely flabbergasted as to how, like I said at Easter Sunday, I said there were 100,000 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem within a few years. Uh, you know, a ground zero. If you want to build a legend, you need a thousand years and a thousand miles. It's got to be far away in a galaxy far, far away, and you've got to be thousands of years in the past, and then you can make a legend because there are no eyewitnesses. You can say whatever you want to say about a myth or a legend. But this was ground zero. The people that became followers of Jesus and died for being followers of Jesus were, were that convicted because they had seen him themselves or they knew somebody who had seen him. And so he also backed it up, not just so Jesus would be raised, but he gave us visual demonstrations that we could be raised as well. Here's a few of them. The widow's son in name, uh, widow, loses her, her boy. Jesus comes up to the dead young man. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Isn't that great? Just like the funeral I did yesterday. Jesus takes her son and presents him and gives him back to his mother. Jairus' daughter, boy, how painful for a mom to lose a son. How painful for a father to lose his baby girl. And Jesus walks up to Jairus' daughter and says, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Now, this is proof that Jesus was a Baptist. Okay, yes. Crisp, give her a Krispy Kreme donut right away. Give her a church dinner. Take her to Cracker Barrel or Joey's. Get her something to eat after church. Okay. Um, Lazarus. Jesus called out in a loud voice. The Greek word here is karazgazo, kraugazo, which means a shout of authority. He kraugazo, 
shouts in a loud voice, a voice of authority, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. A Puritan theologian from a couple hundred years ago said, if Jesus had not used Lazarus' name, Jesus would have emptied the whole cemetery. Now, he did empty the whole cemetery after his crucifixion. Here's a weird little story that we hardly talk about at all, but it's, it's perfect validation of what we're talking about here. It's, it's evidence. It's a visual demonstration. Right after he was crucified, it says, And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. You know, how, how could 100,000 people during the era in which Jesus, um, they said that he had died and rose from the dead. How could 100,000 people be willing to die for him within a few years? Ground zero, eyewitnesses. I mean, it would be so easy for people to say, that didn't happen. I saw the dead body. That didn't happen. Everybody, probably everybody in Jerusalem had either seen Jesus after his resurrection or knew somebody they trusted who had seen him. Or maybe they had seen one of these people that emptied the cemetery after his crucifixion, okay? So it's all this evidence which explains to historians who are mystified by the fact that the world is going this way and something happened and now the world goes this way. What can cause an aircraft carrier to turn a right-hand turn on the open ocean? You gotta change the rudder. You gotta, you gotta switch directions. And that's what did it was the resurrection, not only of Jesus, but maybe these other people as well. Here are some of my favorite quotes on this subject. One is by Tim Keller. You'll see it up here. You know that death, the worst thing that can possibly happen to you, is now the best thing. Death will put you in God's arms and make you all that you hope to be. A Greek writer, Aristides, 125 AD, wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he was intrigued by followers of Jesus. And so he wrote about the followers. He said, if any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. And then my favorite quote is C.S. Lewis. You know, the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was a, was a Christ follower. And so you see many Christ figures in the writings of Tolkien. And this comes from um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia or read them to your kids? He said, all their life in this world has only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Eternity. Every chapter after death. Better than the one before. You know what my goal was, remember the little boy that I said, how, how many are going to heaven? And he said, well, I want to go, but not quite yet. How many of you are more anxious to go now than you were 30 minutes ago? Now I want to give you the hope. Because all these things I've been talking about are only true if you're a follower of Jesus. If you look on the next page, next beyond your study outline, upper left-hand corner, it says how to become a follower of Jesus. And, and certainly this applies to that, but let's cross out become a follower of Jesus and let's put in there go to heaven. How do you go to heaven? How can you know when you walk out the door here in five minutes, how can you know and have the assurance that you're going to heaven? 
Three steps the Bible talks about. You admit your condition before God. In the same way we sense in our hearts that there's eternity has been placed there, that there's something beyond this life, we also sense in our hearts, the Bible says that God's law is written on our hearts. Our conscience is written on our hearts. And so we know that we need a Savior. We need to be forgiven. We sense that in our hearts. We have a conscience. Things we've done and we shouldn't have done or didn't do that we've done and, and or things we've thought or said or people we should have loved um, and haven't loved them the way that we should. And so the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory, the perfect standards of God. And then the second step is to believe that Jesus is God's only solution to your condition. That man crucified next to Jesus, he knew he had done wrong, and so he knew he needed forgiveness, but he turns to Jesus and says, that's the solution. This man has done nothing wrong. If you read the story, he recognized the sinlessness of Jesus. For the wages or the result of our sin is spiritual death and physical death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then number three, we may need to make a decision. Choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word, and that's what you've been doing for the last few minutes, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged for these things in our heart we know we've done wrong, but has crossed over from death to life. Do you want to cross over from death to life? Maybe you're in Kalispell or in Arco or in Rancho Cucamonga or at the hangar in, in Marion, Montana, or you're watching online, or you're here in Pomona, and this is your moment. You're not here, or you're not watching by accident. You're here by divine appointment, because God wants you to, in this moment, know that you've crossed over from death to life. Would you pray silently with me as I pray this out loud? Just pray it along with me silently as I pray out loud. Dear God, Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was, and he proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. Now maybe you're listening to me or, or you're here and, and you're just not ready to take that step. You, you feel like you need more evidence. You need more time to work this through. And, and I understand that. And so here's a prayer I want you to pray. Uh, Jesus, I, I believe that there is evidence that you are who you claim to be, the Son of God. But I'm wrestling with it right now, and, 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 and I feel the need um, for you to show yourself to me. So God, if you're out there, I'm willing to be made willing to pray that prayer. I am open to you. Right now, Lord, if you're there, show yourself to me. Jesus, if you're real, as I read the Bible, and as I talk to you, would you reveal yourself to me so that I can be at the point when I will take that step of faith. And just pray that prayer of open-mindedness. I'm willing to be made willing. Both of these prayers now we pray.
In Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.